0: Welcome to Murder Minute. Today, the story of Evelyn Nesbitt. But first, your true crime headlines. Philadelphia man, Willie Vesey, has been exonerated after serving 27 years in prison. Philadelphia District Attorney, Larry Krasner, has led a charge to re-examine murder convictions from the 80s and 90s, which were suspected to have been the result of coercive police tactics. Vesey's confession was the cornerstone of his conviction. The detectives who interrogated him may have employed unethical tactics, allegedly repeatedly kicking him in the testicles until he signed a confession. A lawsuit involving the detective's misconduct is currently in progress. In addition to the issues with the confession, the Pennsylvania Innocence Project uncovered many inconsistencies in Vesey's case such as his former boss, stating that he was at work at the time of the crime, as well as an eyewitness to the crime being legally blind. This is the 10th conviction to be overturned as a result of D.A. Krasner's efforts. The Philadelphia Inquirer quoted as saying, I get to walk out of here the same way I walked in, an innocent man. Photos and video found on an SD card appearing to show a woman being abused and killed have led to an arrest. Anchorage resident Brian Smith was charged with the murder due to location data on the SD card corresponding with cell phone location data. The memory card was labeled Homicide at Midtown Marriott. Human remains have been found south of Anchorage, and police suspect that they may be those of the woman pictured on the card. Authorities are waiting for confirmation from the medical examiner. The identity of the victim will be released once her identity can be confirmed, and next of kin have been notified. Michael Draca, who had previously been accused of the shooting death of Marquise McLaughlin, has been convicted. Draco killed McLaughlin in July of 2018 over a parking dispute. He has been sentenced to 20 years. Draco was described as a wannabe law enforcement officer, taking it upon himself to monitor the Clearwater Circle A food store, despite being asked by the owner not to. His surveillance of the lot had led to many disputes with customers, and Draco eventually began bringing a gun with him. The altercation which led to the fatal incident ensued when Draca checked to see if McLaughlin had the proper pass to park in the handicapped spot. McLaughlin's family was in attendance at the sentencing and his father is quoted as having said, In the Bible it says in order to get into heaven we must forgive those who trespass against us. At this point in my life I am not there yet. And if it just so happens that the Lord chooses to take me before I come to terms with this, Then I will see you in hell, where you and I will finish this. Mark my words. Draca chose not to speak. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, Evelyn Nesbitt. But first, a quick break. What actually makes a better toothbrush? Claims of miraculous trendy ingredients? Multiple modes? What actually makes a better toothbrush? Claims of miraculous trendy ingredients? Multiple modes? If you ask your dentist, they'll tell you it's less about the brush and more about how you use it. That's why Quip was created by dentists and product designers to focus on what actually matters for your oral health healthier habits. Quip's sensitive vibrations with a built-in timer guide gentle brushing for the dentist-recommended two minutes. That's right, you're supposed to brush for two minutes. Quip's sleek, intuitive design is simple to use and comes with a travel cap that doubles as a mirror mount. And with Quip's subscription, you'll get brand new brush heads delivered to you every three months, so you can keep those bristles as fresh and stylish as you are. Quip starts at just $25, and you'll get your first refill free at getquip.com slash minute. Good habits matter. So get the toothbrush that actually makes you want to brush twice a day. This is a simple way to support our show and start brushing better. But you have to go to getquip.com slash minute to get your first refill free. Go right now to getquip.com slash minute. Take care of your teeth. One day, they might use them to identify your body. Welcome back to Murder Minute. On today's episode... The Lethal Beauty of Evelyn Nesbitt. Florence Evelyn Nesbitt was born in a small town near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, on Christmas Day of 1884. Or perhaps 1885. The town's records were destroyed in a fire, so the exact year has never been confirmed. But more significantly, in later years, Florence Evelyn Nesbitt couldn't quite recall her true birthday, because her mother had often lied about her age to get around child labor laws. Whatever the true year of Florence's birth, two years later, a baby brother, Howard, was born. Florence's mother was a homemaker and a dressmaker. Her father, Winfield Scott Nesbitt, was an attorney. The family lived in comfort, and Florence was a daddy's girl. When Florence showed a love for reading, Mr. Nesbitt encouraged his daughter by setting up a small library for her, even allowing her to read books that were considered to be for boys. When she showed an interest in music and dance, he encouraged her to take lessons. But shortly after the Nesbitt family moved to Pittsburgh, Winfield Nesbitt died suddenly in 1895 at the age of 40. The family was penniless. Mrs. Nesbitt was forced to sell the family's home and possessions in order to pay off Winfield's outstanding debts. She attempted to find work as a dressmaker, but it simply wasn't enough. Over the next few years, Florence, her mother, and her brother Howard moved from boarding house to boarding house, living off the charity of friends and relatives. On more than one occasion, money was so scarce that Howard was sent away, living with relatives for months at a time until his mother could afford to bring him home again. In 1898, after a failed attempt at running a boarding house as a landlady, Mrs. Nesbitt decided to move to Philadelphia and again pursue work as a seamstress. Florence and Howard stayed behind with relatives and waited for their mother to send for them. Mrs. Nesbitt found work as a sales clerk at the fabric counter of a department store called Wanamaker's. She sent for her children, and 14-year-old Florence and 12-year-old Howard were employed at the store as well, working 12 hours a day, six days a week one day, while Florence was working, an artist came into the department store. The woman was so charmed by the girl's beauty and poise that she asked Florence if she would be willing to pose for a portrait. When Florence asked her mother, Mrs. Nesbitt was hesitant. Modelling wasn't seen as an appropriate profession, and she was protective of her young daughter. But since the artist was a woman, she consented. Florence sat for the portrait for five hours and earned one dollar, equivalent to around $30 today. Florence quickly realized that she could make more money working as a model than she could at Wanamaker's. And after some persuading, Mrs. Nesbitt agreed to let her daughter quit working at the department store and pursue modeling full-time. Florence Evelyn Nesbitt soon became a favorite model in Philadelphia among painters, illustrators, and stained-glass artisans. And by 1900, the teenager was the primary breadwinner of the family. But the Nesbits were still far from financially secure. And in June of 1900, Mrs. Nesbitt decided to move again. This time, to New York City, where she again hoped to find work as a dressmaker and send for her children once she was settled. But Mrs. Nesbitt underestimated the competitive environment of the big city. In November of 1900, despite having found no employment, she nevertheless sent for Florence and Howard, and the three moved into a small back room of a building on 22nd Street in Manhattan. Through recommendations from Philadelphia artists, Florence again began pursuing work as a model. With the help of their Philadelphia connections, Mrs. Nesbitt contacted the celebrated artist, James Carroll Beckwith, whose primary patron was none other than John Jacob Astor the elderly artist felt protective of Florence, Beckwith provided the determined young model with letters of recommendation introducing her to other legitimate and respected artists. Through this one prestigious connection, Florence Evelyn Nesbitt became one of the most popular models in New York City. Mrs. Nesbitt fell into the role of what we would call a momager today managing her daughter's career and money, and protecting her as a minor. Within a year, Florence's face had graced the covers of Vanity Fair, Harper's Bazaar, Ladies' Home Journal, and Cosmopolitan. Although Mrs. Nesbitt claimed that she never allowed her daughter to pose in the nude, two artworks from the time, one by Beckwith, and the other by Frederick Church in 1901, both depict a bare-breasted 14-year-old Florence. Florence Evelyn Nesbitt was the original cover girl and pinup for everything from face cream and toothpaste to beer trays and risque postcards. She was the girl in the Coca-Cola ads and even posed for the artist Charles Dana Gibson becoming one of his famous Gibson girls. When photography came on the advertising scene, Florence became one of the first fashion models. Florence had taken photographs before as a pin-up girl for postcards, posing suggestively, dressed as a nymph, a goddess, and various other male fantasies. But now... Photography was beginning to find its place in newspapers and magazines. Florence was delighted. The 15-year-old had grown tired of the long sessions sitting in a single pose for artists and illustrators. Florence soon began working with Joel Fader, a pioneer in fashion photography, who paid Florence $5 for a half-day shoot and $10 for a full day. Florence Evelyn Nesbitt was now making equivalent to $300 a day in today's money. More than the combined income of the entire Nesbitt family back in Philadelphia. But like today, the high cost of living meant that her income didn't go as far toward supporting a family in New York City as it would have back in Philly. Florence decided that the next step in her career was to become an actress. Theater promoters began making offers to the young celebrity model, and John C. Fisher, the company manager for the hit Broadway play Floridora, arranged a meeting. Mrs. Nesbitt was hesitant to let her young daughter enter the theater world, but when she heard... That several young ladies in the show had managed to marry millionaires, she consented. Mrs. Nesbitt stated that her daughter's age was 16, and Florence was cast in Floridora as a chorus girl. Soon, she introduced her new stage name, Evelyn Nesbitt. And it didn't take long for Mrs. Nesbitt's hope for her daughter to be realized. When Stanford White, New York City's most wealthy and celebrated architect, came to see the show, the 47-year-old was captivated by the new young chorus girl. Stanford White had designed the Madison Square Garden, the Triumphal Arch in Washington Square, the New York Herald Building, the Cosmopolitan Building, and countless others. At any given time, Stanford White was working on dozens of projects, both public and residential. He was described by newspapers as a genius, masterful, intense, and burly, yet boyish. But Stanford White wasn't just famous for his work, he was infamous for seducing young chorus girls. And now, he'd set his sights on 15-year-old Evelyn Nesbit. To get an introduction, Stanford White enlisted the help of another chorus girl, Edna Goodrich. Evelyn's first impression of Stanford White was that he seemed terribly old but when he invited Evelyn and Edna to lunch, she accepted. Lunch was on 24th Street, location of the toy store FAO Schwartz, above which, conveniently, was Stanford White's lavish multi-floor apartment. The girls were overwhelmed by the opulent decor, and they, along with Stanford White's friend Reginald Ronalds, Enjoyed a fine lunch prepared by Delmonico's restaurant. Each of the girls were permitted a single glass of champagne. And when lunch was over, Stanford White led the girls upstairs to show them his apartment. The group ascended a beautiful staircase and entered a room decorated in green with a swing suspended from the high ceiling its red velvet ropes entwined with ivy all the way to the top. Evelyn was enchanted, and played on the swing for hours as Stanford White pushed her higher and higher. Edna Goodrich devised a game. She held the Japanese paper parasol, and Evelyn tried to kick it, swinging and aiming, kicking and laughing, until the parasol was shredded. Evelyn Nesbitt no longer saw Stanford White as terribly old, and soon she was visiting his apartment to play on the swing every day. Stanford White slowly wooed not only Evelyn, but her mother as well. He showered them with money and gifts He introduced Evelyn to Manhattan society and paid for her singing lessons. Stanford White adorned the teenager in pearl necklaces, diamond rings, and furs. And soon, Evelyn landed the lead role in George Lederer's stage production, The Wild Rose, starring as Vashti, the Roma Gypsy Girl. Stanford White then arranged for her brother, Howard, to attend the Chester Military Academy near Philadelphia and moved the family into a suite at the Wellington Hotel, designed and furnished by Stanford White himself. The bedroom he designed for Evelyn was modeled after the room with the swing in his own apartment. The drawing room was in green and Evelyn's grand bedroom had white satin walls rose-red carpeting, and a canopy bed crowned with ostrich plumes. The Nesbitt family now wanted for nothing. They were kept by Stanford White. The fact that the 47-year-old was married with a son didn't dissuade Evelyn's mother from accepting Stanford White's generosity. She came to trust him, convinced by Stanford or deceiving herself, that Stanford White's interest in Evelyn and her son was purely paternal. Over time, Stanford persuaded Mrs. Nesbitt that a vacation to visit friends and family in Pittsburgh would do her good. Mrs. Nesbitt was hesitant to leave Evelyn unchaperoned in New York City, But Stanford White put her fears to rest. He assured Mrs. Nesbitt that he would keep a close eye on her daughter. When Mrs. Nesbitt left, she instructed her to obey everything Mr. White says while she was away. Stanford White did keep a close eye on Evelyn. And after a few days, he invited her to a dinner party at his apartment. But when she arrived, no one else was there. Stanford told her that none of the other guests had shown up, but not to worry that they would have a little party, just the two of them. This time, Evelyn was allowed more than one glass of champagne, and Stanford gave her the full tour of his multi-floor apartment, including rooms she'd never seen before. The last room on the tour was the mirror room, a dizzying 10-by-10-foot space covered wall-to-wall in mirrors, including the ceiling, furnished with a green velvet sofa. Stanford presented Evelyn with another gift, A beautiful yellow satin kimono, which Evelyn loved and immediately changed into. The two drank more and more champagne until Evelyn finally passed out. When she awoke the next morning, Evelyn found herself naked in Stanford White's bed, her legs covered in blood. When she began to cry, Stanford comforted her. Don't cry, kittens, he said. It's all over. Now you belong to me. Evelyn Nesbitt became Stanford White's mistress. But it didn't take long for the intensity of their relationship to die down. Stanford set his sights on other young women and Evelyn was devastated when she discovered that she wasn't the only one. By the time she was 17, Evelyn began seeing other, younger men, as her sexual relationship with Stanford faded. But Stanford White remained her benefactor. He continued to support the Nesbitt family, and Stanford influenced Evelyn's decisions for years, deciding what and who was right for Evelyn. When Evelyn Nesbitt met 21-year-old John Barrymore at one of Stanford White's parties, the two were smitten with each other. Barrymore came to watch Evelyn's performance in The Wild Rose over a dozen times, and the two began a month-long romance. John Barrymore was a young illustrator from a showbiz family. And though he was very talented, witty, and handsome, Mrs. Nesbitt and Stanford White deemed him unsuitable for Evelyn because his low salary, working as a cartoonist for a newspaper, couldn't provide for her and her family. Stanford decided that the best way to separate the young couple was to send Evelyn off to boarding school in New Jersey. Mrs. Nesbitt agreed. Evelyn was devastated, and John Barrymore was successfully run off. Evelyn Nesbitt had had many suitors, the polo player James Montgomery Waterbury, the young magazine publisher Robert J. Collier. But one admirer stood out. A young railroad heir Named Harry Kendall Thaw. Harry Thaw, or Mad Harry as he was known, was obsessed with Evelyn. Over the course of the previous year, Harry Thaw had attended 40 performances of The Wild Rose, attempting to win over Evelyn by sending flowers, letters, and gifts under the name Mr. Monroe. At first, Evelyn turned down his advances, describing him as a mighty peculiar person. But when Mr. Monroe sent her a bouquet of roses, wrapped in $50 bills, she sent the flowers back, but her mother kept the money. This time, Evelyn agreed to meet this Mr. Monroe before heading off to boarding school in Jersey. A restaurant was chosen, and Evelyn waited for her mysterious admirer to arrive. The man did arrive. He walked up to her table, got down on his knees, and began kissing the hem of Evelyn's dress, telling her that she was the prettiest girl in New York. Evelyn sat horrified and embarrassed as the man stood up, and dramatically proclaimed I am not Mr. Monroe I am Harry K. Thaw of Pittsburgh Evelyn wasn't sure how Harry expected her to react at this revelation but she didn't swoon as Harry seemed to have hoped Evelyn thought he was creepy their interaction was polite but brief and Evelyn soon left her boarding school in Jersey But for Harry Thaw, this was only the beginning of his obsession with Evelyn Nesbitt. Harry Kendall Thaw had a history of mental instability and strange behavior stretching back to his childhood. The dramatic display in the restaurant was classic Harry. One time, Harry tried to ride his horse into the Union Club. On another occasion, In a strange display of wealth and frivolity, he lit his cigarettes with $100 bills. Harry Thaw was to inherit his family's $40 million fortune and spent the family's money openly and vulgarly on lavish parties, booze, prostitutes, and his speedball habit. As a result of his crazy and dramatic behavior, Despite his wealth and connections, Harry Thaw had been banned from entering many of the society clubs in New York. And Harry believed that Stanford White was responsible. Harry saw Stanford White as his nemesis. And many believe that Harry's obsession with winning Evelyn Nesbitt may have been motivated not by admiration for her, but by hatred for Stanford White and a wish to steal her away from him. Whatever his intentions, Harry Thaw was about to have his opportunity. While Evelyn was away at boarding school, she had an attack of appendicitis and urgently needed surgery. Her mother attempted to contact Stanford White, but she couldn't reach him as he was away on business. So Mrs. Nesbitt contacted the only other option she could think of. Harry Saw. Harry bought the best doctors and nurses money could buy and Evelyn's procedure was a success. He then suggested that Evelyn and Mrs. Nesbitt accompany him on a recuperative trip to Europe at his expense. Evelyn and her mother accepted. The decision would lead to what Evelyn considered the costliest mistake of her life. When they reached Paris, Harry Thaw proposed to Evelyn, promising her a lifetime of financial stability for her and her family. But Evelyn refused. Harry Thaw believed firmly that women should remain virgins until marriage. So when Harry asked Evelyn why she wouldn't marry him, Evelyn explained that she could not accept his proposal because she was no longer pure. Harry demanded that Evelyn tell him the exact nature of her relationship with Stanford White. After hours and hours of questions, Evelyn tearfully told him everything about the night in the mirror room. Harry interrogated every sordid detail out of her. He was sobbing and furious. Harry thought already hated Stanford White, believing him to be the reason he was shunned from New York's elite social scene, and because he, like everyone else, had heard of his reputation for deflowering young girls. But when Evelyn told Harry the story of what happened that night in the mirror room, it was more than he could bear. Harry Thaw still intended to marry Evelyn, but in Harry's mind... Stanford White had stolen her virginity from him. Harry also blamed Mrs. Nesbitt for not protecting her and leaving her in the care of Stanford White, calling her an unfit parent. But Evelyn defended her mother, telling Harry that she was simply naive, and it was she who had willfully ignored her mother's advice. As their journey across Europe advanced, Harry Thaw's mental stability deteriorated. He couldn't get the words that Evelyn recounted to him out of his mind. Don't cry, kittens. It's all over. Now you belong to me. By the time they reached London, Mrs. Nesbitt had had enough and decided to return to New York while Evelyn and Harry continued on. With Mrs. Nesbitt gone, Harry's itinerary for their trip became a tour of sites devoted to virgin martyrdom. In Domremy, France, the birthplace of Joan of Arc, Harry left an inscription in the church's visitor book that read, She would not have been a virgin if Stanford White had been around. Next, Harry took Evelyn to Austria, where he rented Katzenstein Castle and instructed the small staff, a butler, a cook, and a maid, to remain on one end of the castle while he took Evelyn to the rooms on the other end. There, he locked Evelyn in a bedroom and beat her with a cowhide whip until she was covered in welts. Harry Thaw beat and sexually assaulted Evelyn Nesbitt for two weeks. When he finally snapped out of his rage, he tearfully broke down and begged Evelyn for forgiveness. As their European tour ended and they made their way back to New York, Harry Thaw cheerfully behaved as if nothing had happened. When Evelyn got home, she confided in her closest friends what had happened on her trip. Only then did she learn from others that Harry Thaw was notoriously crazy and was reportedly known for taking ads out in the newspapers offering to train young actresses. When they would arrive, Harry would beat them with dog whips and scald them with hot water. Despite all of this, when over the course of the next two years, Harry Thaw continued to pursue Evelyn, she began to think of him as her only option. There was no future for her and her benefactor, Stanford White. He was married, and her relationship with him had damaged her reputation leaving her with few prospects for marriage. Her mother had remarried, and the two had become estranged. Evelyn was terrified of returning to the poverty she had known as a child. Harry Thaw promised that he would change once they were married. He told Evelyn that his brutal violence toward her at the castle in Austria was really rage against Stanford White. Harry assured her that he understood now that she was a victim, and perversely, he told Evelyn that he had forgiven her. Harry Thaw promised Evelyn a life of security as long as she agreed to give up modeling and the theater. Evelyn Nesbit finally gave in. She accepted Harry Thaw's proposal, and on April 4, 1905, they were married. Harry chose her wedding dress. Instead of a white gown, Evelyn wore a black traveling suit with brown trim. Newspapers announced that the former model was now the Mistress of Millions. Evelyn moved into the Thaw family mansion in Pittsburgh with Harry and his puritanical mother. Evelyn had hoped that Harry would finally give up his jealous hatred of Stanford White once they were married. Instead, Harry became even more obsessed with taking Stanford White down and exposing his depravity. For this task, Harry Thaw enlisted the help of the anti-vice activist... Anthony Comstock, a man dedicated to upholding Victorian morality in hopes of arresting Stanford White for obscenity. Anthony Comstock had been the author of the famous Comstock laws, prohibiting the mail of obscene, lewd, or lascivious materials. As Harry Thaw worked to take down Stanford White, Harry became increasingly paranoid. He was so convinced that Stanford White had hired a gang to kill him that Harry started carrying a gun. But Stanford White had no idea that Harry Thaw had a vendetta against him. In fact, Stanford White hardly thought of Harry at all. To Stanford, Harry Thaw was an insignificant poser, a baby-faced joke who he referred to as the Pennsylvania pug. In June of 1906, Harry decided to take Evelyn on a second honeymoon back to Europe. They would travel by luxury ocean liner, embarking out of New York. On June 25th, when they arrived in New York, Harry surprised Evelyn with tickets for the opening of a new show, Mademoiselle Champagne. It was premiering that night at the Rooftop Theater at Madison Square Garden. Evelyn was indeed surprised. Harry had vowed never to step foot into one of Stanford White's buildings, and Madison Square Garden was perhaps the most famous of them all. On top of that, Evelyn knew that Stanford usually attended the opening nights there. Before the show that evening, Harry and Evelyn joined two of Harry's friends for dinner at Cafe Martin, just one block away from Madison Square Garden. There, dining at another table, was Evelyn's former lover, Stanford White. Harry became noticeably agitated and Stanford White didn't appear to notice him. The group left Cafe Martin and continued on to the show without incident. When they arrived to the theater and the show began, Evelyn was relieved to see that Stanford White wasn't in attendance. The heat was stifling that night, but despite this, Harry refused to remove the overcoat that he wore over his tuxedo. This strange behavior went almost unnoticed It was shrugged off as Harry Thaw just being eccentric, as usual. As the show was coming to an end around 11 p.m., Stanford White appeared and took his seat at the table that was always reserved for him. Harry Thaw spotted him and several times started toward his table, withdrawing in hesitation. Stanford White was oblivious that Harry Thaw was even in attendance, let alone stalking him. When Evelyn realized what was happening, she suggested to Harry that they leave. He agreed, and during the final number, I could love a million girls, the group made their way toward the elevator. But when Evelyn looked back over her shoulder, Harry wasn't there. Harry Thaw marched over to Stanford White's table, drew a pistol from under his overcoat, and at point-blank range, in a room of 900 witnesses, Harry Thaw fired two shots into the back of Stanford White's head and one into his shoulder, killing him instantly. Harry Thaw stood over Stanford White's body, his face and skull blown apart and covered in gunpowder. Harry raised his gun into the air and declared to a horrified crowd, I did it because he ruined my wife. He had it coming to him. He took advantage of the girl and then abandoned her. You'll never go out with that woman again. Some witnesses reported that instead of saying ruined my wife they heard Harry Thaw say I did it because he ruined my life. Still holding the gun high above his head Harry Thaw made his way through the crowd to Evelyn at the elevator. When Evelyn asked him what he had done Harry told her that he probably saved her life. Harry Kendall Thaw was quickly arrested. Evelyn later recalled her feelings that night, quote, a complete numbness of mind and body took possession of me. I moved like a person in a trance for hours afterward. End quote. Not wishing to return to the hotel suite that she had shared with Harry, Evelyn found refuge in the apartment of a chorus girl she knew from the theater. The next morning, the murder of Stanford White by Harry Thaw was front-page news. The tabloid press seized on the story. It had it all. The famous womanizing architect, a beautiful young model deflowered, and a heroic young husband defending his wife's honor. The press painted Harry Kendall Thaw not as a mentally unstable stalker and murderer, but as a protector of women. A man who had overlooked his wife's sordid past, forgiven her, and married her despite the fact that she was a ruined woman. Stanford White's reputation as a womanizer was so well known that it was easy to cast him as the villain in the press, and many believed the murder was justified. One man remarked that he wasn't surprised that Stanford White was shot. He was just surprised that he was shot by a husband. He said because he always thought that it would be a father. Harry Kendall Thaw became a symbol of patriarchal duty and a man's role in society as keeper and protector of women. Reporters conveniently ignored Harry Thaw's long history of mental instability, drug addiction, and abusive behavior. This only fed into Harry's delusion of himself as the knight in shining armor. In jail, Harry brought all of his wealth and comfort with him. He was treated like royalty, given four course meals on white tablecloths and a full-size bed. He had his valet— and a butler bring his belongings and serve him, having food delivered from Delmonico's and a bottle of champagne a day. Just one week after the murder, a film called Rooftop Murder was released into Nickelodeon theaters, rushed into production by Thomas Edison, who wanted to capitalize on the public's obsession with the story. The trial was called the Trial of the Century. It lasted three months and was a media frenzy. Evelyn was persuaded to testify at the trial with the promise from the Thaw family that she would be taken care of financially in order to, as Evelyn put it, save a husband I didn't love from going to the chair. The Thaws' promise to Evelyn that she would be taken care of financially in exchange for her testimony was contingent upon a positive outcome for the Thaws. If they lost, Evelyn would get nothing. Evelyn was to present herself as an innocent girl, taken advantage of and abandoned by Stanford White. Her husband, Harry, would be cast as the knight in shining armor, nobly avenging her honor. Evelyn was forced to tell the court every sordid detail of how Stanford White used his wealth and influence to win her trust as a teenager and how he raped her after plying her with champagne that fateful night in the mirrored room. Her biggest secret was broadcast to the world. After the first trial resulted in a hung jury, Harry Thaw, who seemed to believe his own press, was outraged that the jurors had not recognized the killing as an honorable act of chivalry and defense of innocent womanhood. Evelyn's mother was conspicuously absent throughout the ordeal. The Thaw's lawyers accused Mrs. Nesbitt of prostituting her daughter to Stanford White as part of their defense and Evelyn's mother worked with the prosecution against her daughter's interests. Evelyn's younger brother, Howard, who had come to think of Stanford White as a father, blamed Evelyn for his death. In a second trial, Evelyn was forced to relive the trauma all over again, testifying for a second time in the hopes of walking away financially secure. This time, Harry Kendall Thaw, pled innocent by reason of insanity. A defense reluctantly corroborated by his mother, who had spent her life protecting her son and the family's reputation. To save his life, she testified that many in the Thaw family suffered from insanity and that several had been institutionalized. Mrs. Thaw hired a team of doctors to the tune of half a million dollars in order to prove that her son's murder of Stanford White was an act of temporary insanity. Evelyn later commented on the family's determination to spin his mental instability into something positive. The Thaws will put the biggest lunacy experts that money can buy on the stand, she said. Harry was a madman, but they will prove it nicely. And they did. In 1908, Harry Kendall Thaw was sentenced to involuntary confinement for life in the Matawan State Hospital for the criminally insane. His family's wealth granted him luxuries and privileges in the asylum, And immediately following his confinement, Harry Thaw hired a legal team charged with the mission of having him declared sane. Eight years later, in 1915, he was released. Immediately, he filed for divorce. But within a few years of his release, Harry Kendall Thaw was arrested again for kidnapping and whipping a boy in a hotel room and was sent back to the asylum for another eight years. Evelyn Nesbitt struggled to get by for the rest of her life, working as a vaudeville dancer and occasionally appearing in silent films. She bore a son, Russell, soon after the trial, who she swore was Harry's. Harry denied this, and the Thaw family cut Evelyn off completely. In 1916, Evelyn married a dancer, Jack Clifford, and the two formed an act together. But the marriage quickly fell apart, as the public would not let Evelyn forget her past. The scandal and notoriety proved too much for her new husband, and he left her in 1918. Evelyn attempted suicide twice. In the 1920s, she opened a tea room in Manhattan, For the next decade, Evelyn would struggle with alcoholism and morphine addiction. And in 1926, when Evelyn was hospitalized after losing her job and attempting suicide, Harry Thaw, who had been paying private detectives to keep an eye on his ex-wife, rushed to her side in the hospital. Following this reunion, Harry Thaw began giving Evelyn an allowance of $10 a day. He called the money, quote, a token of pleasant memories of the past when we were happy, end quote. Harry Kendall Thaw died in Miami in 1947 from a heart attack. In his will, he left $10,000 to Evelyn Nesbitt. Evelyn finally found some peace in her later years in California, teaching sculpture surrounded by her grandchildren. Before Evelyn Nesbitt's death in 1967 at the age of 82, she looked back fondly on her first love, Stanford White, describing him as, the most wonderful man I ever knew. Stanley White was killed, Evelyn once said, but my fate was worse. I lived. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at MurderMinute.